Content in this episode may be graphic or triggering. Please take care while listening. Welcome back to the Crime and Cookie Juice podcast. Tonight is one of those nights. It's Fatima and I were talking headline cases, but tonight we brought in a special guest. Hey, Chris. Yeah, another night where we've got some really interesting headline cases to talk about, some cases to go back to because there are updates. And mm-hmm. we promised all the listeners that we would follow up with updates on cases. So first off, I noticed you got this comfy hoodie on over there. Can, Did you notice the, the comfy hoodie I have Can you stand up? Let me see. Let me just show you what I have on right now. Yeah. That's it. It's Crime and Cookie Juice swag, it guys. so good. Thank my you. My hoodie has it. not arrived, but can I show you my shirt tonight? What do you have? Yeah, baby. Great minds <laughs> think alike. I love so it. So my love. shirt finally came in. Oh, you got the mug, too? I got the mug, too. I told you. I, I, I ordered a lot of stuff. I like that mug. It looks good. I, I love it. I, I just have to say for all the listeners who have ordered items, don't get mad at us, but I did notice Chris, I don't know how your hoodie is feeling over there or fitting, but my, my shirt's a little snug. Either that or I've gained I've gained some weight because I got a medium, but this is feeling like a schmall. Yeah, <laughs> What's your hoodie feeling you, like? You know, my, my, my shirt, it's true to size. I, okay. I, that's what I think. Maybe it runs a it little bit It is true to smaller. size. It's like right Right there, right. Like, if so, I, like after the holidays, mine will not fit me. So yeah, guys, if you're going to order a crime and cookie juice bag, order an extra size. Give yourself a little bit of room because look, it is Christmas time. We're at the holidays. You know what's going to happen. We're going to put on some weight because we've been eating so much. So give yourself a little bit of room. Give yourself some a little bit of expansion until you go back into that January diet that probably won't last past January 15th. It looks really cool, though. I like them. I I really do. And so our merch, for those of you who haven't seen it, says Crime and Cookie Juice, and it's got a glass of bourbon with a fingerprint on it because that's what we do. We drink and we talk evidence. They're really cute. And I think the whiskey glass will finally let people know what cookie juice is because a lot of people out there still don't know. But before we get into our special guest tonight, the headline cases we're going to discuss and our bourbon, Chris, I picked a review tonight. Is it okay if I read my favorite review for this week? Go ahead. You can go ahead. Okay. So for the record, I have more than one, (laughs) but your reviews and feedback, especially the ones where everyone is talking about what they've learned. I don't know about you, Chris, but that just excites me knowing Mm -hmm. that we're teaching people things they didn't know before. But my favorite review this week comes from A. Kapling. And it's it's titled Full Body Spirits. Chris and Fatima are my favorite of any podcast or crime TV show ever. Oh, I just said ever. ever. That's awesome. Right. He that is she. awesome. I come from a long line of Philly PD and I'm an ultimate crime junkie. They complement each other perfectly. They are empathetic experts and take the time to explain details and techniques so the audience understands. Thank you, guys. Mm -hmm. And then in all caps, they write, I love you. Oh, that is so amazing. That is so amazing. Yeah, I love it. Super encouraging. Thank you so much for that long line of Philly PD. Yeah, you know. I love that we have law enforcement listening. That's right. I'm so glad about that myself because look. Most of the time when we were out filming, doing Reasonable Doubt, and even First 48, when I was doing First 48, we had a lot of law enforcement officers that were opposed to watching the shows because they thought detectives were hamming it up or choosing to not be as empathetic as they should for a sensitive case like a homicide. But 
now, I think with the podcast, just knowing that we have more law enforcement officers that are listening, some of them may agree, some of them may not. But the big thing that I'm trying to do that I want to do with this podcast is to start that conversation, just like we did with Reasonable Now. Nothing has ever changed in this country without first having a conversation. And that's what I appreciate. You know, if you agree, if you don't agree, let's talk about it. Let's figure it out. And, and we'll come to a conclusion. Maybe we won't see eye to eye. Maybe we will. But the, the the way that you figure it out is if you have a conversation. And that is so crucial because we're talking about our criminal justice system. We're educating listeners in case they're ever jurors. And we want to empower people. But ultimately, if we really want change, it's going to start with law enforcement. It's mm-hmm. going to start with prosecutors, defense attorneys, judges, people who are part of the criminal justice system. And all investigations begin with law enforcement. Mm -hmm. So if we have police officers, investigators listening, that means they are open to learning. And that is really cool because it's important to stay up to date. I love that we had a lot of law enforcement fans for Reasonable Doubt because that is a wrongful conviction show and oftentimes, even if we found that something was not a wrongful conviction, we still had to openly criticize and talk about mistakes that were made by law enforcement. And that was something, Chris, you didn't shy away from when you had to, when you saw those mistakes. And that speaks volumes about the kind of investigator you are, the integrity you have, and the purpose behind this calling of yours to make sure that we're getting it right in the criminal justice system and that law enforcement are held to a higher standard. Mm -hmm. You have always stood for that. And the fact that you have other law enforcement fans who are watching our show and saying, bravo, you're right. This was not done right. We need to do better. I'm learning from this. That encourages me so much because that's really where the change is going to happen is with those folks. So this review, that's what made me excited about it. Philly PD. I know, right? Yo, shout we out know to Philly, Philly PD love, is crazy. We, love, we know yeah, yeah, they yeah. got crazy cases. <laughs> we did get We some just crazy talked cases. about one last week. Right. Mm-hmm. We, we They've love. got their issues like any other PD. Everybody has them. You know, no, there's no perfect department because they are run by an imperfect people. That is us as law enforcement, as human beings. I Appreciate mean, it. I got to hear about imperfect criminal defense attorneys all the time. We make a lot of mistakes too. I've made plenty of mistakes in Mm -hmm. my career. I've been at this for many years now. And I look back to my early days and I go, Ooh, if, if I'm reading a transcript of something of mine, I'm sure I would criticize myself a whole lot. There would be a lot of mistakes, but Mm -hmm. it's all about doing better, learning, growing, being better at what you do. You're not, nobody comes out the gate knowing everything and having a perfect practice. That's, that's why they call practice, right? right. As an attorney, I have a practice and I want to keep getting better. And when we do these podcasts and we have our experts on, it's not just for y'all it's for Chris and myself too. It's for a lot of other attorneys, a lot of law enforcement, like we just said. So everybody has to be a part of this change. Everybody has to be a part of learning and growing. And look, you don't learn from successes. I'm one of those types of guys. I learn from my failures. If somebody's telling me, if if I'm consistently doing things right, I'm really not learning. I'm really not growing. The only way that you learn is from failure or someone bringing it to your attention. I've always been one of those people that I, I, corrective criticism is something that I welcome at any stage of my career. 
So heck yeah, those, those failures though, they stay with you too. Some of them haunt me still. It's like eight years later and I'm laying there going, Oh, did you really say that in court? You know, those mistakes that you make where oh my you're God. so embarrassed later, your skin starts to crawl. You're just like, why did I do that? I just want to like go underneath a bed or something. You know, I told you about the one case, you know, look, I've been blessed enough in my career not to lose a case that's, that's gone to court. But I have one case that I got a mistrial in, and I've told you about the way that that daggum defense attorney during that time, and I will <laughs> say his name because he taught me so much. The man's name is Emory Anthony. If you Emory don't know Anthony. who he is, you can Google him. Emory Anthony is, in my opinion, he is the greatest defense attorney that I've ever run across, and I've run across <clears> him. <throat> I'm sorry, what? When I was working, he was the greatest <laughs> okay. defense attorney that I ran across until I ran across this... <laughs> It's just very young, fiery defense attorney by the name of Fatima Silva. You know, Henry Anthony. All Henry right. Anthony. Yeah. I was on the stand in one of the cases that I write about in my book. I was on the stand with this guy for eight and a half hours over a two day period. Wow. He examined me for eight and a half hours on a homicide case. By the end of the first day, I'm talking about I was sweating. I had perspired all through my suit and I had made so many mistakes. So days after that cross-examination, I had been drinking the whole while because we got a mistrial. And this is a case that I had put my heart and soul. I almost lost my family working this case. I had put everything into it and we got a mistrial. So my wife takes me out for breakfast and guess who I see sitting at breakfast? It's him. It's Emory. Oh, He's sitting at breakfast and it's me and my wife. And I wanted to go over there and slap the shit out of him, honestly. <laughs> but he sat me down. He came over to the table. He said, you take a few mind if I sit down with y'all for a minute. He sits down with us and he says, listen, man, he tells me everything that I did wrong. Now, this is this is a defense attorney. This is a guy who three days ago, he took me through the ringer. Mm-hmm. I sit down with him and he tells me, he's, he's like, look, you're a great investigator. We, we've had several cases together. I know you do better work than this, but here's the mistakes that you made. It was oh. mainly because of the way that I was unprepared. Just wasn't prepared. He told me everything that I did wrong. And after we get through talking, he gets up, leaves, and he pays for my breakfast. And I thought oh, about that. And that's he, awesome. He, uh, before he left, this is what he said. Look, man, I just want you to know it's not personal. This is really business, but it's not personal. Three months after that, we go back into trial. And this time I am so prepared. Instead of my cross-examination lasting eight hours this time, it lasted two. Because he just didn't, wow. it, it just didn't, there was nowhere that he can go. Now we still got another mistrial, but that was because my witnesses said something they weren't supposed to say. Oh, no. <laughs> oh. Yes, sir. But it ended, it, we ended up getting a conviction on that case, you know. Oh, okay. uh, I remember you telling me the case mm-hmm. and I remember you telling me the experience, but I never knew his name or anything like that. Yeah. You know, I, I just want to make sure that I give people their flowers. He deserves it. Because who knows what type of investigator I would have been had I not run across him during that time in my career. Because I had been in homicide for maybe a year when that happened. So mm. he taught me early in the game, you need to be prepared. My drink is right here. So I'm ready to take a shot. shot. <laughs> okay. Um, right, just my last so, little bit. I just okay, want to make yeah. sure I say some of his protégés were in there during that cross-examination and they tried to do the same thing to me. But Um, by that time, I mean, that was the only time I had learned and I learned due to failure. Mm -hmm. That was a failure for me because my family had to go back through 
two other trials, one of which mm. was because of the mistakes that I made. That you made. So mm, that's heavy, but you live and learn. We're not going to get into my failures. We'll be here all night, but y'all, there are plenty. <laughs> so, Chris. Tell me what you're drinking tonight. You got a drink tonight? You got another procedure tomorrow we don't know about? I don't have another Dasani procedure. Sunny water in your no, hand? What do you got? Not, not at all. I am making up for that one week of <laughs> not drinking, but I am back on my Uncle Nearest. Oh, okay. you remember Uncle Nearest. I told you All right, you the so we're story. recycling again. Okay, cool, yeah. because I'm running out of bourbon here. I'm running out, but you know, I just love Uncle <laughs> Nearest. And it's just such a cool story. Amen. It's part of the reason why I wanted to do it tonight because I got to have. Miss Victoria Butler on our podcast. She is the master distiller for Uncle Nearest. Well, Victoria, if you're out there, we're going to find you. Mm-hmm. We're going to get you on here. Well, tonight I am drinking Old Bardstown. Do you know Old Bardstown? This one came recommended. And I'm just going to be honest. They're all starting to taste the same to me, bro. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, sorry. oh, Okay, wait, hold on. Let me take a sip. Hold on. ASMR here. Here we go. Oh, this one's spicy. Yeah. Really? Yeah, spicy. But you know what? Then it's got a sweetness. Mm-hmm. All right. So this is kind of like four roses and that like the first sip is spicy and then it's very smooth now. And mm-hmm. actually like a fruit aftertaste okay. kind of. It's an old time whiskey. Mm-hmm. And I think this might be one of my top. Really? Mm-hmm. All right. You know, last... yeah, just because it's giving that fruity aftertaste that I like. I mean, I told y'all I'm addicted to sugar and sweetness and anything like that. But let's let's jump into some headline cases now and introduce our guest who has been sitting so patiently yes. and sipping on her drink. Her drink is almost gone. <laughs> so allow me to introduce forensic psychologist Dana Anderson. Yay. So a little bit about Dana tonight. She's going to be doing headline cases with us because a lot of these cases we're talking about. We do need a forensic psychologist mm. opinion. She does evaluations and expert testimony for criminal cases throughout the state of California. That means she does criminal evaluations, which include competency to stand trial, and she specializes in treating and assessing severe mental illness and personality disorders. So that is intense stuff. Uh, You definitely need a drink at the end of the day, Dana. Welcome to Time and Cookie Juice. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, of course. Thank you so much for having me. Dana, your drink is already almost gone, but what do you got over there? What's your cookie juice? Uh, a little bit of Kahlua, which is rum coffee flavored liqueur, and then equal parts of cream and vodka. And it is so delicious. That's such a good holiday drink. It is. It sounds holiday. Yeah. So I want to start with the case tonight that was extremely shocking when it came out. Chris had messaged it to me right away. And it's a really sad case out of Milwaukee. This past month, there was a 10-year-old little boy who shot and killed his own mother. Apparently, it was over him wanting a virtual reality headset from Amazon that she would not get for him. Now, this young man said that he was upset that his mother refused to get him this virtual reality headset. And so he got the keys to where she kept her gun. He went and he opened up the lock. He got the gun out. And he says that he was just going to scare her. And he was aiming it at her, but he was going to shoot at the wall, but that she walked in front of the gun and he accidentally shot her. It turns out that's not necessarily true. He's 10 years old. So obviously my concern is he's so young. 
we don't really know who was with him during the process of interrogation or interview, anything of that nature. But it does sound like he knew that he wanted to either scare his mom or hurt his mother. Because after he shot and killed his mother, he logged into her Amazon account and he ended up buying the virtual reality headset after all. And the next day he's asking his grandmother whether it came in. That is extremely disturbing. I'm sure every parent has had that thought at one point. Is my kid going to hurt me one day? You know, you just kind of have these thoughts sometimes when they're really angry at you and you hear these stories, they're rare, but when you hear about them, they really do stay with you. And what's concerning about this story is that his older sister says that they've been worried about him for quite some time. He's been in therapy weekly. He has a history of abusing animals. There was a time when he was abusive toward a puppy. And there was another time he lit their living room on fire. So he had behavior that was showing he was violent and dangerous. And they were concerned about it so much so that the mom had cameras installed in the house. So she was more concerned about the person living with her, her own son. And those cameras apparently were shut off at the time of the murder, but there were so many signs for this family, but the boy was only 10 years old. So Dana, there's a lot to unpack here. What do you think as a forensic psychologist, when you see a story like this? 10 years old is so incredibly young. Something like oppositional defiance disorder, which is think of antisocial personality disorder for adults. So it's very little disregard for rules. The abuse of animals, is that a sign of a dangerous child? Deliberately harming a pet or animal, that's deeply concerning. And that's that's at a whole nother level. So if you're you're deliberately inflicting pain to see Mm -hmm. that emotional stress, like that power and control that you could have over another Mm -hmm. being. Yeah. I would say you've crossed the line. There's a lot of people that will practice harming an animal or someone that's weaker than them before they get to maybe same age peers. So is it an early sign of a mental illness? I would say it's definitely something to inquire more about and ask open-ended questions to know more about their understanding. I don't know the emotional intelligence or cognitive functioning of this boy, if there's some disability, right? Child abuse, domestic violence, those are all risk factors, but very deeply concerning to be harming your pets. I think the difficulty for me in this situation is he's 10 years old. So as a mother, I would want to think, oh, this is just a child. But realistically speaking, as somebody who works in this field and does these evaluations on adults who end up committing awful crimes, are these signs concerning? Are they bigger deal than we may think? Yeah, it's absolutely a big deal. And this age is so young. I recently saw someone in juvenile hall who was a teenager, but he had tried to stab his mom and hold her hostage. And as it turned out, I actually did some cognitive testing and he had low IQ, like in the eighties, closer to borderline intellectual functioning. So he had limited way of communicating his needs. And, you know, violence is the language of the unspoken. That was said by Martin 
Luther King during the riots, but it is a way of communicating and it's very serious. For like, somebody can't articulate themselves the way they want to due to a disability, then they're just going to act out like this. Yeah. And in this case, this boy is at a point where we could get to a point where we don't have to watch him eventually escalate and murder someone. And so I did a very thorough psychological evaluation to help his team, probation officer, family, everyone understand how to best assist him and then give him some reinforcements. So I never underestimate good intervention. Tragically, the story mm. that's in the headline, there wasn't one. For parents who are listening, and I'm sure there's a few who listen to a story like that. They have concerns about their own child or a niece or nephew or grandchild of somebody who may display behavior that can be concerning. What advice would you have given this mother? It sounds like she was doing everything she could. She locked up a weapon. She had cameras in her house. She was taking the kid to therapy. Do you at a certain point say, I cannot keep this child at home. I need this child committed somewhere. Don't minimize or dismiss or be complicit when you hear these types of behaviors. Even if just the slightest bit of concern, go ask questions to someone that has experience and they're qualified. I mean, there may be something that happened or there's something right. you're experiencing. Think of biological predisposition. That could be one factor where there's a history of mental illness and there's your environmental factors. So say I'm exposed to poverty and abuse and my parents withhold love and I'm abused. Eventually these people are created there's a book called The Creation of a Dangerous and Violent Criminal, and it's pathology from how one is formed, all mm -hmm. the things leading up to that. No one just becomes totally unempathetic, but there's a reason. And there usually is some very serious markers like abuse and sexual abuse. So there's definite markers, but no intervention. Is there just a particular sign or a particular act that a child does that you would say as a professional, okay, he needs serious, serious therapy. I think any behaviors where they're making statements about harming themselves or others or cutting um, suicidal statements. I think as a parent, it's important to be emotionally available and have open communication with your child. So whatever is going on, you are available to hear and listen to it. A lot of times kids that are being sexually abused or some other incidents occurring, they never tell or they never feel like they have a, a parent that they can go to or talk to. And so mm -hmm. they keep it in and then they don't have that outlet. So it's important as a parent, be emotionally available for those conversations, ask the difficult questions, be inquisitive, be curious. There might be something more to find out. I do think it's very important if you have any concerns about your kids, take them to a experienced psychiatrist for an evaluation or a psychologist for mental health. Some of the interventions I do, I do some serious psychopathology testing and I get all the details and I really go deep to find out specifically what's happening. Why are these symptoms manifesting the way that they are? What do these intrusive thoughts mean? And as it turns out, sometimes it's like early onset psychosis. So they have these sort of dark, disturbing thoughts. It's almost hard to detect and it takes a professional. Yeah, sometimes it's really hard to get information from kids to find out what's going on in their life and to get them to open up and talk, especially boys. Boys will tend to project their emotions outwardly, where girls will take it inside more as anxiety or depression. 
So let's let's break that down a little bit more because that's actually very important. And it kind of leads into our next case also. You said boys will exert their emotions on the outside while girls will do it on the inside. So boys are more apt to hurt others while girls are more apt to hurt themselves. Yeah. Okay. And that explains why a lot of times when a girl has sexual trauma or has been abused at a young age, she actually ends up giving herself to Mm -hmm. more people and becoming even more of a victim Whereas a lot of times men would end up violent. Girls are more likely to cut themselves or harm themselves. You may see some females with borderline personality disorder, kind of like hate some of the parts of yourself or what's been done to your body. You kind of cut on yourself. That's really highly common, especially with females that have been sexually abused. Someone that's suicidal, and as we talk about other cases where someone becomes homicidal, there's usually some mood instability where they've been depressed or suicidal, and the act of homicidal is a way to change their mood and get that adrenaline pump. It's like they'll switch between suicidal to homicidal. Mm-hmm. Mm. When you are seeing defendants who have become homicidal, do you often see in their younger years violence towards animals, arson, those kinds of things? Is it likely that you're going to see something like that? I recently interviewed 40 men who were molested as boys as part of a civil suit. And that was something common, a way to react from that type of trauma they acted out or became violent to others because that's how they were dealing with it. And they had no emotional outlet or no safe place, no one to talk to about it. And they were deeply ashamed or humiliated and were angry with themselves and ended up taking that anger out on someone else. So I do see that boys who are sexually abused, that is a risk factor for violence. Mm -hmm. You know, I was doing some research while you were talking about how often it is that you'll see violent behavior from people that have been victims of sexual assault, especially males. And apparently that is prevalent. So Dana, all across the headlines, it's actually going on to almost 40 days now. There's been an investigation happening in Idaho where four college students were murdered inside of a single home. The news has been all over this case since it happened. As a matter of fact, I've been asked to go on multiple different shows and speak about it from an investigator standpoint. But I'd like to get your take on some of the things that they are asking me. So here is one of the main questions that I get. Who do you think is responsible? Is there anything that you can draw from your area of expertise to determine who may be a suspect in this case, whether it be male or female? Well, the majority of violent crimes are committed by men under the age of 35. It's typically male. That's what statistics will tell us. Less 90% of the jails and psych hospitals, it's about 90% men. Wow. Yeah. So Anything about the particulars of this case that also makes you feel like it could be a man? So the stab wounds were very deep tears. Someone who is strong, filled with rage and adrenaline and momentum, maybe somebody that has experience using a knife or they've used it before. I know some people have even considered whether this person had military experience or they've practiced with knives before. 
maybe a hunter or something to that effect woods uh, yeah i mean knife wouldn't be my choice of weapon as mm -hmm. a female mm -hmm. i would mm -hmm. use something i was comfortable with that i'd used before and I knew it would work. So, and you said something earlier uh, about this person being organized. Why do you say he had to be organized? It's a lot of, he's organized because he came into the house. He went up multiple stories. How did he not leave bloody footprints behind? He knew what to use to not be detected. Mm -hmm. Know that law enforcement isn't revealing too much of the evidence that they have. And that's, as it should be. In the beginning, I think there were some mishaps where they had led people to believe everyone is safe and they have someone in mind and this wasn't just something random. And while that might be the case, as far as we know right now, they don't have a suspect. Um, could they? Possibly. But we know that they're not divulging too much for a good reason. It's an investigation, an active investigation. But based on the evidence that we do know, we haven't heard anything about any bloody footprints or anything like that, but there could be DNA that they've found that they're waiting on. The tests are probably going to be completed fairly soon. There could be other forensic evidence, but it does seem like someone who was very angry and had this ultimate goal in mind to go in and absolutely take lives. There was nobody who survived any encounter with this person. So for them to go in and kill the way they did without anybody waking up and without any struggle, really, right? That's that's what you had said, Chris, there really wasn't a struggle. Mm -hmm. Everything that we hear in this case is all secondhand because the law enforcement officers are keeping everything very, very close to the chest. So they have mentioned that there was only one person or at least the coroner's office mentioned that there was only one person that was that had any defense wounds. So that would suggest to me that no one else, including the two witnesses or the two people that were in the house that were unharmed, none of them heard anything else mm -hmm. or, or they weren't awakened by the stabbing or the uh, or by the confrontation. So, And it had to have been someone intimidating because each of the pairs were in bed together. Mm -hmm. I heard that even the other two roommates were in the same bed. So while you're stabbing one person, the other one has to wake up from the movement, from something, but they still didn't even have a chance. So I guess that would go to somebody who is strong and like you said, organized, powerful. So in your opinion, uh, somebody who is familiar with the area or with these people or could this have been just some psychotic person off the street? I would think it would be someone that had some familiarity with at least one person that they were motivated to go after. Maybe that person ignored them or didn't date them. There's, you know, some of these girls had huge thousands of followers on social media and Instagram. They put themselves out there. They're very popular, very beautiful. There was I even read some of the comments on Instagram and some of them were deeply disturbing comments of men making vulgar comments. Um, oh, this is before they, they were killed. Yes. So just the, the way that people would comment on, on the posts that they were posting. They were very popular and a lot of people wanted them, wanted to be with them. They were kind of unattainable. Maybe an angry guy who was rejected. We hear about that often. Rejection is oftentimes why a woman is, is killed. Mm -hmm. 
I heard this and, and Dana, you could speak more into this, but I heard this statement one time and it's always stayed with me. A woman's biggest fear is that a man will kill her. And a man's biggest fear is that a woman will humiliate him. Who's to say how true that is? That's a complete generalization. But if you think about it, of course, a woman's major fear is that a man is going to kill her. Men don't really go to bed thinking that at night, unless well, they're uh, dating a very listen, special woman. <laughs> you know, I've been married for a very long time in my life. <laughs> Some nights it's probably been warranted. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sleep with one eye open. Right, right, right. No, but that that thought, right, that is what most women fear is a man harming her in that way. Men, what is their biggest fear? For men, a lot of times it's being humiliated, being embarrassed, being rejected. Rejection is that huge form of humiliation for them. So that could have been something that happened in this case. And somebody just said, you know, I'm going to take all, all of them out. Well, the others were bystanders. They were going after maybe one, but the others were an inconvenience. And maybe the person they were targeting, they wanted to make them watch the other person suffer or humiliate them or put them in a fear or have them experience all those emotions maybe they're feeling. Do you think so, it could be one of the college students there? It could be, but whatever, whoever this person is, they're watching and they're taking everything in and they'll eventually be found. They want to be known at some point. This gives them power. If you had to create a profile of a person that could be responsible, what would your profile be? And the first thing I think of when I saw it was a man, 20s to early 40s. I think he wanted to be with one of these individuals and he wanted to act out his fa fantasy, maybe sexually. Maybe he got rejected. It was never going to happen. It was fantasy in his mind. And so he wanted to end this person's life. The others, they were there at the house. This was the final act. Something maybe triggered it. This person perceived some rejection or mm. perceived his ego was harmed or perceived they had a relationship or he felt this person made him suffer and he was rejected and his ego is hurt and he's filled with rage and maybe he's also depressed so he has to act out and as a way to combat depression it's like i will just rage and i don't care if i get caught mm. a lot of mass murders or serial killers have mood instability they have childhood trauma or sexual abuse and Usually at some point, they're kind of suicidal. You don't care about yourself so much. You don't care about what happens to you. You don't care if you die. We've been hearing a lot of talk recently. There was the suicide of Stephen Twitch boss, who was the sidekick DJ of Alan DeGeneres. And that's really thrown a lot of people because he seemed like somebody who was so happy and had it all and had this beautiful family and seemed like a light in this world. And he apparently took his own life, which is devastating. But there's been so much talk right now online about mental health with men. What are your concerns? You're a forensic psychologist. You work with majority men who are predisposed or have a propensity to commit crimes. What is your opinion as far as accessibility and what is needed in order for males to get more help early on? Good questions. Well, first of all, I was going to say that men who are suicidal, they're more, more likely to complete a suicide. So that's very important to know. Women, it's parasuicidal to make a lot of statements, but don't actually always end in killing themselves. When men are suicidal, they're more likely to use lethal means and actually die. 
The most common risk factor for completed suicides is bipolar disorder. So there is a struggle with depression and mood instability. One thing I found about working with men and especially men with trauma, they don't talk about it. Some of them are going to their grave with it. There's not that outlet, which is so important. And there's a lot of stigma it taking away their masculinity to ask for help or to say they have a problem or to admit it. It's so difficult. And that's one of the things that's, I'd say, most hurtful is men not feeling that they can speak about it. So statistically speaking, women are more likely to go to therapy, which is good for women. Men aren't as likely, which means they're not getting help. And if you notice, there's a lot of more resources focused towards women, if you actually look at it. Even domestic violence shelters, back when they started in the 80s, it was women's shelters. So women got interventions or men didn't get services they needed. So I'd like to see just more men talking about their emotions mm. and their struggle and kind of normalizing it and having other men encourage them. And for women too, but I really, I really want to encourage a safe place for men to talk about things they're going through so that they have that outlet. Do you think if they had those resources and it was normalized for men to talk to other men or therapists about their problems, do you think it would reduce them committing crimes, acting out? I do. And I learned something this last month where I interviewed 40 men who were sexually abused and most of them were never going to tell anyone they're going to their grave and they're not even telling their wife in the other room. Some of them moved on to be in prison, jail, sex offenders, all these horrible things they did with their life. And it really impacted them. And they never told anyone. Some of them were like on their deathbed. They told me so much how it affected them and never telling anyone, just dealing with shame, embarrassment, humiliation, all these emotions, and none of them going to therapy and them telling me how they acted out, how they got involved in crime, how they did these things. And one of the takeaways that I noticed was that boys maybe not feeling they have an apparent that they feel safe to talk to or no one emotionally available. The number one preventative risk factor for suicide, you know what it is? What is it? Having a meaningful relationship with someone. Anyone just having a meaningful one. Yeah. And wow. if you think about it, why wouldn't you off yourself? You know, you have your spouse or your child or your boyfriend, right? But what if you had no one, mm-hmm. no one deeply emotionally invested in you? So I think that emotional connection is so important. I deal with people that are suicidal and I always try to be present for them and listen to understand, not listen to respond. And sometimes if you don't know what to say and your friend's suicidal or it's just listen to understand Mm -hmm. and you can always encourage them to get resources and talk to someone. It's can definitely change the trajectory of someone's life. I like that. That's important. And I think it's important that we all have these conversations and knowing the signs that can lead up to somebody becoming involved in the criminal justice system. If they can avoid that at a younger age, at a time when the trauma occurs or before lose all judgment and commit a crime. I think that's That's something that needs to be talked about because we do have this epidemic of violence against women and it's at the hands of men, majority, and then just violence in general, like you said, majority, it is men. So if we start talking about that and 
the ways in which we can help men be there for them and hear them out. You talk about it, Chris, you're not a big talker when you, as a homicide detective, you've seen a lot, you've been exposed to a lot, but you don't like to talk about it. No, I don't like to talk about it. And it's something that I had to learn to talk because actually, if you really want to know the truth about it, we were trained not to talk about it. You know, I remember going to several different classes on homicide and about investigations. And one of the main reoccurring themes was leave work at work. Don't ever take work home. Well, it's different for a homicide detective. You need, you need to unload and un unpack some of the things that you saw, some of the emotions that you were feeling. Because 90% of the time, what we would do, and I'm, I was guilty of it too. I just told you about one of my cases that I had. And, you know, after we got that mistrial, I spent the, the rest of the week drinking, took off work, stayed at home. I was just in there drinking because I was so invested in the case. And I felt like I had let my family down. <clears throat> part of the argument or part of the issues that I was having with my wife before then was that I wasn't talking to her. I wasn't communicating about what, what I was going through in that case. And the way that all of my cases kind of affected me the same way, but this one was special because of uh, the connection that I had to the case. And I didn't know how to talk and it was something that I had to learn. And I think that. Uh, but you do it a lot more with your son now. Now I do. Now I do. Mm -hmm. But back then, CJ was probably six or seven years old. You know, he's 28, 26 years now. It's 20 years No, but late. you check in with him to make sure that oh, he feels like he has that outlet, that, that safe space to talk. Absolutely. And it took me a while to learn it. It took me time to learn it. I probably didn't learn it until, you know, he got older. But now I understand a lot more than what I did when I was younger. He and I were together earlier today. And I just had to sit him down and, and say, look, man, we can we can talk. You know, I'm going I'm to be the best advisor that I can for you. But you can always talk to me. So, mm -hmm. so we have a, a much, much better relationship than what we did, uh, you know, because of the fact that I'm, I'm not the same guy that I was when he was a kid and I'm a lot smarter than I was when I was raising him. If you can understand that. Live and learn. Yeah. Well, this has been very insightful and we thank you for providing your expertise when it comes to the psychology behind a lot of perpetrators of these crimes. So thank you for being with us this evening. Thank you for having me. All right. Guys, y'all join us next week. We'll have another interesting episode of Re Reasonable. <laughs> Keep that in there. Join us again next week. Guys, join us again next week. We'll have another interesting episode of the Crime and Cookie Juice podcast with a little bit of drinking and a lot more of learning. Thank you, guys. A little bit of both. Have a good night. Good night. Can't, 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 can't.